I'm a member of the Guild. I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. And there's this mistrust of the various unions of SEIU or AFL-CIO that they're going to co-opt the movement. And like, they don't have that ability to do that. This May 1st, it's a good time to work with the labor movement. That's what I sent to the Dallas Morning News. That's what they ignored. And that was what I expected. It's the next George Washington Carver's W.D. DuBose and Frederick Douglass's. <laughs> That's who's being kicked out of these schools and sent to inferior second-class schools. Workies, especially socialist and anarchist working groups and unions, basically created an American May Day. The government decided that obviously they weren't going to have a, a socialist holiday, so they created an official Labor Day in the United States. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, from the Your Rights at Work radio show, the American prospect Harold Meyerson traces this week's Hollywood writer strike back to the roots of the Writers Guild's founding in the 1930s. Then, on the Reinventing Solidarity podcast, a provocative assessment of independent unionism as a strategy for building worker power in the U.S., Eric Loomis talks with new Labor Forum consulting editor Joshua Freeman. From the Workers Beat Radio Show, 10 minutes on May Day 2023 in Dallas. Continuing our May Day theme on the Green and Red podcast, Bob and Scott break down May Day with a little history of labor struggle from 1877 to 1937. Current labor struggles, including unionization and union busting at REI, wins at the University of Minnesota and Stanford, and past anti-nuclear actions on May Day. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. You're listening to Your Rights at Work right here on WPFW 89.3 FM. But there's a strike going on. Let's just get right to that, Ed. There's a strike going on, uh, actually, mostly out in Hollywood. Just about 12,000 Hollywood writers and producers walked out Tuesday. Hi, I'm Bill Walcott. I'm a TV writer. I'm out here because we are fighting for a fair deal. The studios and the companies and the tech companies have broken the way television is made. They have found loopholes to pay us as little as possible, and they're fine with that. And I am not fine with that. We are not gig workers. I wouldn't have a show if it wasn't for my writers, and I support them all the way. They got to have a fair contract. At the end of the day, this all comes down to greed. In 2000, the combined entertainment operating profits of the production studios was $5 billion. By 2019, with the advent of streaming and the addition of companies like Netflix in the mix, they were up to $30 billion. Streaming has boosted corporate profits, but writers are actually earning less now. I'm a member of the Guild. 
I support collective bargaining. This nation owes so much to unions. In a difficult negotiation with a powerful group of companies, you don't win gains by playing nice or knowing the right people or with an extra firm handshake, no. What you're able to win is directly tied to how much leverage you have. Our first guest this hour, Harold Myerson, at-large editor at The American Prospect. You have a great piece uh, in The American Prospect, The Writer's Walk, that kind of sets the historical stage or puts some historical context. Uh, so so run, run us through that, if you would. Well, back in the day when unions uh, first really took off with the National Labor Relations Act, and the Supreme Court in 1937 ruling that it was, in fact, constitutional, uh, right away, uh, most of the, what are called the, the guilds, the talent guilds, uh, you know, uh, had uh, elections, or they already had elections that clearly showed that their members, uh, you know, wanted a union, and they formed a union, and then the studios, uh, you know, uh, had a variable response. Uh, right away, they got a contract with the uh, Screen Actors Guild. Uh, actors, of course, could shut down production uh, simply by walking off the set. Uh, and moreover, the studios did not want to attack them. These were the same people that they were spending tons of money, uh, you know, uh, promoting as exemplary public figures. So they weren't about to go after, uh, you know, Clark Gable and uh, and Betty Davis and 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 so on. Uh, the directors, uh, a little more time, but within about nine months, they recognized the Screen Directors Guild because, after all, directors can, you know, stop production uh, just as quickly as uh, uh, as the actors. They just have to not say the word action, and uh, nothing happens. Writers, however, were structurally, you know, not in that kind of position. They couldn't stop uh, production right away. Uh, you know, uh, the studios all had backlogs of screenplays sitting on their shelves. Uh, A. B, the Writers Guild, then as now, um, was the one that was most, say, politically distant from, uh, you know, the, the studio heads, who were generally a fairly conservative lot, Louis B. Mayer, the uh, uh, sort of the capo de tutti capo among the uh, uh, heads of studios had actually for a number of years been the finance chair of the uh, Republican Party, the National Republican Party. Um, and the Writers Guild uh, then, as to a certain degree now, their board was composed of, you know, a mix of liberals and radicals, uh, uh, none of whom were uh, viewed as all that simpatico by the studio head. So the Writers Guild though it was on the same timeline as the other guilds, couldn't get a contract until 1942, five years after uh, the other two guilds did. And, uh, you know, and the studios were ultimately, as we saw from the blacklist, uh, willing, you know, to sort of bow to right-wing pressure uh, and have this, you know, uh, not not all that friendly a view of uh, screenwriters. I mean, there was sort of, you know, a cultural dis uh, gap when uh, talkies came in and all these writers came out uh, west from New York, uh, you know, schlepping with them the politics of the group theater or what have you. So historically, they have been really the uh, envelope pushers and uh, the ones most pushed back against by the studios. <laughs> Thanks so much, Harold Meyerson, uh, for 
covering all of this. And again, he's got a terrific article about the writers walking. Check it out right now. Thanks so much. Harold Myerson, American Prospect and again, prospect.org. Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. Think of the past year's victories at Amazon, Trader Joe's, Starbucks, among others. The journal's editorial team felt it crucial to help assess this strategy. We reached out to historian Eric Loomis, asking him to take a long view on experiments with independent unionism as a tool for worker power. Loomis signed on delivering for the spring 2023 issue of New Labor Forum, a provocative article titled, Independent Unions, The Allure of a Failing Strategy. In this episode of Reinventing Solidarity, Loomis discusses with New Labor Forum consulting editor, Joshua Freeman, the besieged, ill-fated history of independent unionism, as well as the prospects for this strategy against the likes of today's corporate behemoths. So, you know, I think this gets to the heart of what you're talking about. Maybe we talk a little bit about it. I think it was the Amazon labor union victory in Staten Island in, in April 2022 that really put this issue on, literally on the front page of American newspapers. Can you talk a little bit, bit about that, about both the Amazon labor union and, and to what extent do you think the fact that it was an independent union Did that make a difference in in its success? It was a very interesting moment, but I think that what was really telling, and I get into this a little bit in the article, is how it was reported upon, how established labor figures, big-time labor writers, activists, organizers, those in the sort of labor intellectual public community, almost instantly wrote that this is a new model for American unionism, that the old centralized model is dead, And here is a new model, and maybe this has shifted the entirety of the American labor movement. And, you know, for me, I'm like, that's a a little much, you know? It's one victory, right? One victory, a very impressive victory, unquestionably, right? Winning anything at Amazon is a a heck of a win. But is it really a single victory needs to be reported on as a rejection of the entire history of established American unionism and the need for independent operations and independent unionism, I think that puts a lot of pressure on an individual movement to succeed. And uh, I don't know how healthy that is. You know, it really got me thinking about something that I've, even since I've finished writing it, I've continued to kind of try to work out in my head, which is a kind of mistrust of expertise in contemporary America and a mistrust of institutions. There is this like real upsurge of desire to participate in movements for economic justice, but they're also like really tinged with a kind of independent small A anarchism that I think has roots going back to the 70s, 80s, 90s. And that, you know, that, that fundamentally 
you know, whether it's sort of like the, you know, the upsurge of support for the Bernie campaign in 2016, especially 2022 uh, as well, that, you know, really combined uh, support for his policies with a general distrust of the Democratic Party. Whether it is, you know, this uh, this sort of rise of everything from a kind of anarchist environmentalism to a rise in sort of everyone, you know, in in the COVID epidemic, everyone's their own epidemiologist, you know, a mistrust of doctors too. uh, And there's this mistrust of the various unions of SEIU or AFL-CIO that they're going to co-opt the movement and like, they don't have that ability to do that. Like the idea that the American labor movement could co-opt anything is pretty laughable given the relative lack of power in the AFL-CIO or in any individual union, but that that fear is very much there. So I think that there is, I think to kind of you know, make this more concrete for right now, I think that, the, you know, for a lot of younger people, especially younger people, that there is a desire for unions, but a mistrust of institutions. And so creating it as an independent union that really promotes internal democracy and kind of consensus decision-making and these kind of models has a lot more appeal to a lot more people than, you know, we're going to sign cards with SEIU or whatever. So that sounds good, but, but you're, you're kind of skeptical about it. You know, um, you're, you know, not unsympathetic, but, but in the end, you don't really seem to think this is a model that's going to work. What's wrong with it? I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I, I think that it's it's just less likely to succeed. You know, I mean, the, I think the one thing that makes me a little bit different from a lot of other labor commenters is, and sometimes I get frustrated by this, is that I feel like a lot of very, even the most prominent labor people, historians and 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 and, and other scholars and journalists tend to be almost cheerleaders for the movement and really kind of bring this ideology to this. And I just want workers to have power. So I, I don't I don't bring a lot of like ideological preconceptions to this in terms of what I think unions should look like or anything like that. And, and also I just I'm not sure that the sort of cheerleading is, is useful. I, I think that skepticism is useful. I think that being the person who's like, wait a minute, maybe this you know, maybe rushing to anoint Chris Smalls as the future of the American labor movement actually is a, not a good thing, right? There may be problems with this. There's a desire, I think, to create heroes, to have easy answers, to see a way through the morass of economic inequality that we have today. And I understand that, but I don't know how useful it is. And so I, I think that the reality of being a labor union in the United States is you need a lot of resources, right? That it is a battle that in the end is often fought in the courts. That one thing, established unions do offer certain things like resources, like, you know, one problem with independent unions can be, for instance, if the leadership moves on to other jobs, as you know, Starbucks workers, as an example, are quite likely to move on to other jobs. They're not necessarily super committed to being there for 15 or 20 years, then, you know, that established union can provide some bridges and some resources to then develop new leadership as opposed to things sort of fading away. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine, for instance, who in Texas was, his children were involved in, who were, you know, 18, 19 years old, were involved in, you know, starting a, kind of an independent union to some pizza place in Austin. 
and they were pretty involved and, you know, got a lot of publicity and then they just kind of got new jobs, you know, and that's, that's fine. But I, I think that, you know, long-term unionism requires long-term leadership. It requires resources. And so I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I wish everybody the best of luck, but I'm not sure that promoting this model as the future of the labor movement is very likely to succeed. And so I just want us as labor supporters and labor people to have a con real conversations about how useful this is and to talk internally about the ways in which we as labor experts are promoting certain ideas or talking about certain campaigns. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. To subscribe to New Labor Forum and or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu. This is Gene Lance on the Workers Beat Extra. I'm the president of the Texas Alliance for Retired Americans, the state president. And at the local level here in Dallas County, I'm the president of the Central Labor Council. And I'm also active in my union, in the Auto Workers Union, where I'm the president of the retirees. So I feel that I have the right to say a thing or two about May the 1st. I wrote an op-ed for the Dallas Morning News, which they did not run. They never take much of anything from the unions, but this is what I said. For good reason, Americans are joining the rest of the world in celebrating International Workers' Day this May 1st. We unions enjoy the highest approval rating in decades, over 70%, according to a Gallup poll. Americans regard labor much more highly than any presidential candidate or sitting president. Congress and the Supreme Court can't even get above 40% approval. May the 1st is the anniversary of the 1886 worldwide strikes and demonstrations for the eight-hour day. Around the world, it is always a popular holiday, but most Americans avoided it after the leaders of the eight-hour movement were unjustly hanged in Chicago in 1887. But since 1889, the whole world has remembered those martyrs from Chicago. And now, here in America, we're starting to celebrate it, too, because unions are kind of on a roll and because we're popular. Across the world, organized workers are organizing, striking, boycotting, and negotiating for better treatment. As this is written... More than 155,000 Canadian public service workers are on strike. I think it's 17,000 members of the Writers Guild in Los Angeles are on strike. Retirees have led gigantic strikes and demonstrations in France. Other nationwide strikes have taken place in Peru, Ecuador, and other nations to our south. In the United States, Hundreds of thousands of Teamsters and auto workers are preparing to strike if they don't win better contracts this summer. You can add the American Airlines pilots to that to do too because 
Today, they voted uh, strike authorization. TV and film writers in Los Angeles voted 98% for strike authorization, and then they did it. Unions are not targeting only traditional blue-collar factory workers. Thousands of low-paid university employees have joined unions, such as the auto workers or communications workers. Over 300 Starbucks coffee employees have already demanded union contracts. Ice cream scoopers at Ben and Jerry's are being pleasantly surprised by the news that their employer will not oppose their organizing effort. Employees at the environmental nonprofit advocacy organization Texas Campaign for the Environment won voluntary union recognition for their union with the communications workers. As Americans' faith in other institutions crumbles, this May 1st, it's a good time to work with the labor movement. That's what I sent to the Dallas Morning News. That's what they ignored, and that was what I expected. This is Gene Lance on the Workers' Beat Extra. Welcome to Green and Red, scrappy politics for scrappy people. A regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics. Brought to you by Bob Pazanko and Scott Parkin. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of your scrappy May Day. I am Scott Parkin, your co-host in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I am joined by... Uh, Bob Bazenko. Um, So just wanted to sort of share those two sort of radical moments in U.S. history, which are also radical moments in the history of the anti-nuclear movement. Yeah, I want to talk about something that's actually a segue to kind of the meat of what we're talking about today, which is which is May Day. Uh, and this um, comes from 1894 on April 30th, the uh, famous Jacob Coxey led a huge march of unemployed and poor people to Washington, D.C. I know growing up, you know, I heard that phrase so many times. I'm sure all of us have Coxey's army. And it wasn't until much later that I realized what it actually meant. The 1890s was a, a time of uh, serious economic distress in the United States. And that entire period was a time of, of incredible labor agitation. The period from uh, 1877 to 1937, I call the, the time of class war. And it is the most sustained period of, of class, not just class conflict, but often violent class conflict in the United States. And that's those are the circumstances under which May Day, you know, kind of developed. Uh, Coxey's army, I think there were like 10 or 10,000 or more people marching on Washington. And the basic point there was that the economy had kind of cratered. Um, a lot of uh, uh, jobs were lost. Uh, there had been major deflation, in fact. So wages were down, prices were down, production was down. So many goods that had been produced weren't being sold. So you had these massive inventories. So the entire economy is a mess, is my point. And you had people taking action. Um, and that same year, not around that same period, you also had the famous Pullman strike in Pullman, Illinois, where Eugene Debs and the, and the railroad workers tried to, to, you know, kind of shut the entire country down because Pullman owned this company town and had, you know, lowered wages and raised prices and rents and things like that. I think it's it's really, you know, kind of lost sometimes because I think sometimes American labor history can be a little romanticized, right? Um, this is a period of, of sustained struggle. And if you read it, and this goes all the way through from the 1800s, I've just, you know, you can mention a few of the big ones. 
but these are occurring all the time in the mines and the Western fields with the, you know, later you have the Wadley's Western Federation of Miners, the, um, you know, uh, and then, you know, after that, you have like Ludlow, which we mentioned last week, the Battle of Blair Mountain. So you have this period all the way from like, say the Great Strike of 1877 through the Little Steel Strike, which is 1937. And those are just nice bookends because it's 60 years where the ruling class was challenged in a, in a very aggressive manner and never hesitated to send out of, to, to spawn violently, right? It would send out the militias, it would send out police, it would send out Pinkertons and Baldwin Fells, private, you know, send out the troops in 1894. The, uh, the federal government sent out army troops to bust the, the Pullman strike, right? And, and it's within that context that, that May Day became uh, a thing. May Day was actually a socialist response, a socialist holiday, a workers' day, right? International Workers' Day. And, um, it, it, you know, and, and, you know, May 1st traditionally was May Day. So, and, and the, the Haymarket uh, rally was, I think, May 4th, right? May 3rd or 4th, something like that. Yeah. So all yeah. of this morphed together and workies, especially socialist and anarchist working groups and unions basically created an American May Day. The government decided that obviously they weren't going to have a, a socialist holiday. So they created an official Labor Day in the United States, you know, in, in, in September. But that period is really important, I think, because um, it gets to something that we on the left have talked about forever. And I think, you know, the, the, the basic issue here is the ruling class is very violent and will stop at nothing to, to crush you if you get in the way. And that there are, I think, you know, I think it's necessary to have larger um, tactical, you know, uh, possibilities, a range of tactics that we're able to use, you know, and not immediately, you know, throw up your hands and say, we're not going to do this because then, you know, you just kind of surrender. Go out uh, and uh, go to your favorite bar and have a Mazel Tov cocktail, you know. <laughs> Subscribe to the Green and Red podcast on your phone while you're rate and review us. And then also want to do a particularly big shout out to the Labor Podcast Network on May Day. We're proud members of the Labor Podcast Network. Uh, also subscribe to all of their stuff on social media and everywhere else. They're they're great. They put our every every episode we have out and every episode that all of the members of the Labor Podcast Network have out. They they push out hard. Uh, so big love to the Labor Podcast Network on May Day. And we'll all talk to you again soon. Raise hell. Uh, don't give up. And you know question authority and question the liberals. And we'll talk to you again soon. And that's going to do it for this May Day Week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a very small sample of the amazing programs aired last week on more than 100 Labor Radio and Podcast shows across the country. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them, use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon and Mel Smith. I produce the show and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. Happy May Day. Happy May Day.